All right, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Welcome. Those of you who watch us on Facebook Live or you watch us on our webcast or you watch us on television, we are so glad that you're joining us in person this morning as we worship together and open God's word together. This morning, we're going to talk about warning labels. And uh, in any area of life, you kind of need to pay attention to the caution labels. Of course, in our society, where there's a lawsuit filed every 15 minutes about something that's gone wrong, companies feel this special obligation to issue cautions to us or warnings to us on their products. Some of my favorites are the warning on a wheelbarrow wheel that you would buy at Lowe's or at Home Depot or at a hardware store, which says, caution. Not intended for highway use. Isn't that kind of interesting? Or the a little tag of caution, a warning la- label on a baby stroller. Caution, remove baby before folding. I think that is a really good caution. The caution, uh, the warning label on a jet ski. Never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel levels. That's, that's good. Uh, but perhaps my favorite is a warning label that actually occurred on a, uh, on a medication prescribed by veterinarians to treat dogs. It was not for human consumption. You got, I want you to get the context here. Humans did not take this medication. But the warning label said this, caution, may cause drowsiness, use caution when driving. <laughs> I don't know whose dog's doing that, but at any rate, it's on the, it's on the package. Some warnings in life seem trivial and funny. Some warnings in life are actually pretty important. And Paul is wrapping up a section of this letter with the passage that we're going to study today. And he issues some cautions, some warnings for us. And I would say to you that if you fit into one of three categories, or you might ever perceive that you could fit into these three categories, this message could save you from a lot of missteps in life, from some missed opportunities, some missed joy. Um, This is not a question of whether you're going to heaven or hell, but this is a question about the Christian life. If you are a young, like college student, high school student, junior high student, if you are a young believer, or if you are even older than that and you're a new believer, I want to really challenge you to stay with me today. Even though the concepts may seem like this isn't relevant to me, I'll get to a place where you'll see that it's actually very relevant to you. Because as new or young believers in Jesus, many of you have a passion to grow. You want to read God's word. You want to know more about what it means to live for Jesus. And you're going to encounter at some point in your life, someone or some group of people who are going to say, if you come to our Bible study, we have the key. We can share with you the experience that you need to have a fulfilling Christian life. And some of those things lead you way astray from the purpose that God really has for your life. The second group of people that I would say I would really challenge you to listen in are those of you who've been Christians maybe for a long time. But your Christian life, you just kind of feel plateaued. Maybe there was a time in your life when you were growing. There was a time when you felt like you were moving closer to God, being more Christ-like. But if you were honest in your assessment, over the last few months or years, you've just kind of been flat. It's kind of going through the motions. 
And you could experience the same type of thing where in a desire to grow, in a desire to move closer to Christ, you might begin to think that adding something to Jesus is the answer. The third group of people that I want to challenge are people that I find myself in this boat. And that is that some of us in this room have very strong convictions about some things. And that is not wrong. You should have very strong convictions about a lot of things in life. I want to applaud strong convictions. But there's a point where my convictions can cross a line and I can seek to impose those on other people. And if it's a matter of conscience, if it's a matter in which we I can look at scripture and you can see things one way and I can see things another. We need to exercise a bit more grace in those areas. So that's kind of what the, the focus is going to be this morning. And I really do believe that this message could help some of you, so maybe not today, but somewhere down the line. The Apostle Paul is warning the church at Colossae against these very things. He is warning them not to settle for less than fulfillment and life in Christ and in Christ alone. He's warned them about adding to their faith. He has given them instructions about what Jesus offers them and that they don't need some of these things that people were coming into the church at Colossae and saying, oh, you got Jesus, that's good, but you need to add this. And so Paul gives them, as he concludes this section of the letter, three warnings. Let's read the passage together, then we'll work through the warnings. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commands and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, since you thoroughly understand that, we can probably pretty much cut to the chase, right? Some of you are going, what did that mean? Well, there are actually three warnings in this passage, and I, let me give them to you. Here's warning number one. Don't accept other people's judgment of you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's the first thing that Paul says. He says in verse 16, no one is to act as your judge. Now, Paul is saying, don't allow other people to judge you. But, but here's the truth, something that we all have to come to grips with. Other people are going to judge you. It's going to happen. 
That, that is a fact of life. But what you don't have to do and what you can control is what you receive, what you accept as their judgment. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict you. It is the Bible's job to inform you. It is your job to read your Bible and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if something in your life needs to change, you do it because the Bible told you to and the Spirit led you to, not because a bunch of spiritually superior people tried to coerce you to change something in your life. Now, Paul gives the church at Colossae two examples. And when we read these examples, we might say, well, I don't know that has anything to do with me. But follow me for just a minute. Let me walk through them and let me get to a, a point that I think you will find really, really relevant. He says, first of all, don't let anybody judge you based on Jesus plus a special diet, plus a special diet. He says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Now, here's what was happening at Colossae. You had these people who came in, the, these people are following Jesus, they're wanting to learn, they're in that group of people, of new, uh, category of people, new believers, and these people come in and say, you got Jesus, that's good. But what you really need to do to be fulfilled, if you really want to please God, if you really want to be accepted, you've got to obey all the Old Testament dietary laws. You can't eat pork, and you can't eat catfish, and you can't eat shrimp. By the way, all of those are forbidden in the dietary laws. Some of you, you're like, what am I going to eat? You know, I mean, that's, uh, I can't eat anything. Well, this was a big deal in the time of the New Testament. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal now, but there's a principle here that I do believe is important for us as Christians. This controversy didn't just happen at Colossae. It also happened at Rome. And at Rome, it was creating in the church a division. There were people at Rome who said, you know what? All of the meat in the meat market is, is dedicated to idols, to these false gods. So we shouldn't eat any of it. We should all become vegetarians. Our conviction is don't eat any of that meat offered to an idol. We're all going to be vegetarians. There were other people, and I would have been firmly in this camp, who said, hey, it's meat. I'm eating, okay? They were the carnivores, okay? And Paul actually had to speak into this at the church at Rome, and I want to read it to you because I think this one will inform us. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God who has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you guys are creating a controversy where there shouldn't be one. Because whether you eat the meat or you don't eat the meat, that's a matter of conviction. That's a matter of personal conscience. Let me help you with something. There are some areas of life where there isn't a specific Bible verse to tell you exactly what to do. 
You're going to have to dig in and find some broad principles that the Bible teaches. You're going to have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in some of these things. And then you walk in obedience to what God has instructed you to do. These are matters of conscience. And on some of these subjects, you're going to see it one way. And some really serious God-honoring Christ followers are going to see it another way. And Paul is saying... You accept one another. You don't allow these kind of issues to drive a division into the fellowship. That was Jesus in special diets. But then there were some other people who were talking about Jesus in special days. Look back at the text, verse 16. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was a big debate in the first century. When should Christians worship? There were a group of people, uh, quite honestly, after a while they became the minority who said we should worship on the Jewish Sabbath. There were others who said, no, the early church is worshiping on Sunday. Do you know why the early church worshiped on Sunday? They worshiped on Sunday for one reason. It was the first day of the week and on the first day of the week, Jesus came out of the grave. We celebrate the resurrection on Easter in a very specific way, but did you know that every single Sunday we celebrate the resurrection? That's why you're here this morning. We are here because our God is alive. He's not dead. And so the early church said, no, we're going to worship on resurrection Sunday. We're not going to abide. We're not going to be bound by the law of the Jewish Sabbath. And so Paul is saying, don't let days divide you. Now, there's not a, a lot of that in our generation. I would grant you that. I did encounter one thing in my, in my early ministry, in my life, where I would say it was kind of, there was a little bit of that. Um, I served as a pastor in Louisiana for about 10 years. And while I was there, if you, if you live in Louisiana, if you serve in Louisiana, what you will discover is a very large percentage of the population is Roman Catholic. And I have wonderful Roman Catholic friends, and I love them, and I do not judge them. Um, God is their judge. I'm not. But one of the things that's very big in Louisiana is Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. M Mardi is Tuesday in French, and Gras is fat or large. And so on Fat Tuesday, you have a big celebration. Well, Mardi Gras has become more than a day. It's kind of a season. And let's just, let me just be honest. Let's all just be honest. It involves the consumption of large quantities of alcohol. I mean, it really does. It's a big party and sometimes a drunk fist. But on the day after Mardi Gras, there's Ash Wednesday. Now, many of my friends who were devout in their faith would go and celebrate Ash Wednesday. And you get the sign of the cross on your forehead um, and they would, they would really honor what Lent is supposed to be about. Sacrificing something, giving something up in order to draw closer to God. But for many of those people who were involved in Mardi Gras for that two weeks, and I had a set of neighbors who were, I mean, they were deep into Mardi Gras. It was just another ceremony. So my neighbor on one occasion did not understand why I didn't have ashes on my forehead. And she said, aren't you giving up something for Lent? And I said, yes. 
meaningless religious rituals. You see, Jesus plus a special day or a religion doesn't really add anything to your faith. You say, okay, but Bob, really, what does this have to do with us? Well, let me help you. Here's the application or the principle that we take from this. The principle that we take from this is this, that there are areas of life where good, God-honoring people see things differently. And we need to make sure that we do not judge one another in those areas of life. And I'm going to give you some examples. The first one is most predominant right now, and that is politics. I have over 4,000 friends on Facebook. Now, I can't find but about five people who'd help me move a refrigerator, and those are my real friends. But I got 4,000 friends on Facebook. And you can imagine among 4,000 people... There are a variety of political opinions that I can see if I scroll down through my Facebook page, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. The other day, I noticed that a couple of my friends posted an almost identical post. I mean, the words were close, not exactly, but they said something like this. I cannot believe that any true Christian would ever vote for, one of them put one candidate and one of them put the other. Now, I want you to vote, and I want you to vote your convictions. I wish, what I really wish you'd do is read the party platforms and then vote. That's what you really ought to do. I'm not going to endorse a candidate from this pulpit. I have more important things to talk about. The kingdom of God and transform lives. But I do want you to vote. And while who you vote for may say something about your Christianity, the way you treat people who vote differently from you says a lot about your Christianity. Let's not judge one another about something that's not in the Bible. I'll give you another example. Parenting. Some of you in this room are parents. Boy, there's a lot of pressure on parents. We make choices and, and we got to make these big decisions in the lives of our children. We know they're going to shape them and affect them. And you got some educational choices to make. Do you send your kids to public school? Do you homeschool your kids in a private school? I have been in churches where that has been a major source of contention. And between those choices about parenting, it has divided people. It shouldn't divide people. Pray about it. Seek God. Do what's right for your family. Honor him with your choice. And pursue whatever course you believe God's leading you to pursue with passion. And love your child through whatever system it is you go through. But neither of those should be used as ammunition or a hammer to judge somebody else. Our parenting choices, you know, it's tough to navigate sometimes. Sometimes the landmarks, the, the, the markers change. And you got you to gotta look around and figure things out. I'll give you another example. And this one's a, maybe a little controversial, I don't know. But alcohol, it's, it's very much a, a topic of discussion for Christians. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have a conviction. I've shared it with you before. Some of you do not share my conviction. Let's just all agree on this. The Bible says drunkenness is a sin. That's really not a debate. But the question is, can someone use alcohol in moderation? Should they abstain? 
Now, I'm honest with you about where my conviction is. I abstain from alcohol. I've set the guardrail at abstinence. It's the best way to keep me from abuse, addiction, or drunkenness. Some of you say, you know what, Bob? I can have a glass of red wine with my steak. And you know what? I'm not going to judge you for that. I don't think it's my place. If the Holy Spirit wants you to abstain, you got the same Holy Spirit I've got. And he can tell you to do that. And I'm going to trust you to obey what he says to do. But Paul is concerned in this passage that we learn to live with one another in some areas where we need to follow the Holy Spirit, we need to trust that he's going to guide people, and we don't allow other, we don't allow other people to judge us, and we don't judge other people. We trust the Holy Spirit to do his job. That's a pitfall in life that we would all be best to kind of back away from and, and accept. Second warning. Don't surrender the joy of simply following Jesus. In verse 18, Paul writes, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he have seen, inflated without cause. Now the warning here is don't let someone defraud you. The word could be translated disqualify you. Like an athlete who breaks the rules and though they're trying to compete and win the prize, when you break the rule, you're disqualified. But it is be, to be disqualified from the prize. Now, what is the prize that he's talking about here? New Testament scholars actually disagree. There's one camp that says what he's referring to is the prize that Believers will receive when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we, uh, if, if we go in for all these sort of worship of angels and, and this self-abasement and the things that he's talking about here, that we'll lose our prize before the judgment seat. I'm really in the other camp. And I, let me tell you what that is. Because the verb here is let no one keep defrauding you. It, it's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that's happening right now. And what I believe he's talking about is the prize of the joy, the fulfillment, and the contentment. The spiritual confidence that comes into your life by simply following Jesus. Now, Paul talks about self-abasement. That means depriving yourself of things in order that you think you're going to achieve a higher level. This worship of angels has been an infatuation of every generation that has ever come along. Go to a bookstore. You'll find books about angels and how to connect with your angel and all these sort of spiritually foolish things. And there are people who would tell you Jesus isn't enough you need the worship of angels or you need these rigid rules in order to connect with God. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is you're always going to ask yourself this question. Have I done enough? Boy, boy have, I, have I connected with enough angels? Have I, have I gone through enough rituals? Have I done enough religious things? Have I done enough? When that answer will always come back. No, you could probably do a, bit, a little bit better. You could probably do a little bit more. You need to dig in just a little bit more. And there's never a sense of assurance in your Christian life. You never rest in Christ. See, if the question is, have I done enough? You're on the wrong track. 
But if the question is, has Jesus done enough, you're on the right track. Because what he did on the cross is the fully sufficient payment for your sin. And the Bible talks about resting in him. Even Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, you're worn out by religion, you're heavy laden, you're burdened down by all these religious requirements. Come to me and I will give you rest. Rest. We are in desperate need of rest in our culture. I read a story that not too long ago about how many people are sleep deprived. Well, there's a rest that is better than sleep. And that is the rest of being confident in your position in Christ. And you don't have to earn his acceptance. You don't have to earn your way into his blessing. That it is a gift of his grace in your life. Don't let somebody steal that. Don't let somebody disqualify you from the prize. And then he says this. He says, verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head. That's Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. Hang on to him and trust him, not the rules and the regulations. So don't surrender the joy of simply following Jesus. And finally, don't be enslaved to rules that don't restrain. Don't be enslaved to a rule book that really doesn't restrain you from sin. Here's the way Paul phrased it. Look at verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, here's the question. Why, as if you were living in the world, why do you submit yourself to decrees or rules do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Religion is filled with the thou shalt not commandments. It always has been and it always will be. What Paul calls in this passage self-made religion is always a list of rules that you got to check off. And he says, in the beginning, these kind of things, they look spiritual and they look wise. They really do. Look, look at verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. But here's the truth. Rules never make you perfect. Rules will never make you perfect and acceptable to God. Even the keeping of the rules will not. In the book of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews writes these, these words. For the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Rules will never make you perfect. But I'll tell you what they do. They'll make you pretend They'll make you pretend that you are. When I was growing up, I grew up in a very conservative, uh, very, very rule-oriented faith. Now, I'm very thankful for my parents. Very thankful that I got saved as a child. But there were some areas where there was some legalism, some pretty rigid rules. One example of that, just an example is, we did not dance. We did not dance. Dancing was wrong. Dancing was sinful. You shall not dance. 
We did not dance or have dances, but we had hayrides. <laughs> Some of you have been on a hayride. They were very edifying. Absolutely they were, maybe not. You see, the rules didn't restrain us from temptation. They really didn't. And that's what Paul says about this at the very end of the passage. The very last thing he says is, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. If you do not carve out a satisfying, fulfilling, joyful life under God, then sin will always look good to you. It's always enticing. If we don't find the life that Christ wants us to have. I've also found this, that some of the most ruthless, vicious people I have ever met are church members who have rules that you don't keep. They're ruthless and they're vicious in their criticism and their condemnation because you didn't keep their rule. Not because you weren't living for Jesus, but because you didn't keep their rule. Paul issues this warning and I think it's something that we need to take very, very seriously. We need to love one another. We need to accept one another. Now, some people might say, but Bob, if we do what you're suggesting we do, We'll throw out all morality. Absolutely not. By the way, in the very next chapter, Paul's going to talk about some moral issues. He is. But here's the truth. Jesus never sinned. So if you're following Jesus, he will never lead you into sin. The Holy Spirit will never contradict what God's word says. Ever. So if you're following Jesus, if you're reading your Bible, and if you will simply be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you will not compromise morally. This is not about moral compromise. This is about the liberty that Jesus offers us and doing away with the bondage of man-made religion. That's what Paul's talking about. Let me get to the heart of what he's talking about. It's in verse 17. I got to go back up to find it. But I really believe this is the heart of what Paul was talking about. He says, these things, all these rules, all these rituals, these special days, special diets, they are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The real thing belongs to Jesus. The word shadow there means image. Uh, we might even translate it in our modern translation, picture. They're a picture of the things to come, but the substance is Jesus. Did you know that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus? I mean, the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. Everything about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. The law points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. It's the shadow, it's the picture, it's the image of the things to come. But once you have the substance, once you have the real thing, the authentic article, you don't need those anymore. Back a few years ago, a few more than I care to remember, Marianne and I had some wonderful friends. They're still our friends to this day, Bobby and Gay Allen. Bobby was a, a career Marine. He 
uh, retired as a regimental sergeant major from the Marine Corps. And when his son turned 18 years of age, Lloyd, his son, wanted to join the Marine Corps, wanted to be like his dad. Uh, it was, you know, an honorable thing to do. And we had just gone in full bore into Iraq in the, the second Gulf War, the one after September 11th, 2001. Lloyd joins the Marines. He knows what it means. He's ultimately going to be deployed to Iraq, goes to basic training. It was not long until Lloyd had his boots in the sand. Well, during that period of time, almost a year that Lloyd was over in Iraq, our friendship with Bobby and Gay became very important. We, Marianne and I, made a very intentional efforts. We prayed for Lloyd every day. And when we were with Bobby and Gay, we would pray for Lloyd. And, and we, we prayed for him to come home. And they would confide in us how, how they were feeling about this. And, of course, Bobby, being a, a Marine, he told me, he said, he said, I've wished a thousand times it was me there and not him. You know, but he's my son, and I'm proud of him what he's doing. Gay, being a mom... She just missed her son. She just wanted her son back. And she told me, and she told Marianne and I one night, she said, Bob, sometimes I miss him so much, I just take his picture and I just hug it. I just hug his picture. She's just a mom wanting her son. Well, we really faithfully stayed with them through that year and we were great friends. And they called us and they said, Lloyd's company, they're, they're coming back. Um, and of course, Lloyd was okay, and we were thrilled with that. And they said, we want you. You've been so faithful to pray for Lloyd. We want you to be with us. Now, that was one of those moments where as a civilian and don't have anybody in the military, I don't get to see something like that. And I'm like, yeah, I want to be there when he comes home. So we go, and we're in this place, and, and uh, we're, we're watching the company come in. We pick Lloyd out, and I'm a little taller than a lot of other people, and so I could see him, and uh, Gay and Bobby are both shorter than me. They, they couldn't quite see over some of the people. And I said, oh, he's over there. And I was pretty excited about that. And they go through the ceremony to dismiss them. And when the commanding officer says company dismissed, there was a shout of people just so excited that probably will only be matched when you get to heaven and somebody says he's home, Okay. But people are scrambling and they're moving and, and I kept my eye on Lloyd and I'm walking toward him and Lloyd saw me and he locked his eyes toward me. Have you ever been in a moment when you knew you were in the right place but you were out of place? Because I'm looking at Lloyd and he's looking at me and he's walking right toward me and I knew what needed to happen and I did it. I stepped out of the way and I pointed and Gay was the first one to him and she wrapped her arms around him and she was hugging her boy. And she just held on to him. And I will tell you this, not for one minute did she think, I really need to add the picture to this. Because I've got the real thing. When you have Jesus, you have everything. You don't need to add the other stuff to it. And that's what Paul is trying to get us all to understand. Live the simple joy of following Jesus. Father, your word is true. Thank you for these reminders. For some of us who need to put up some guardrails and to make sure that we don't add other things to our faith, Lord, we thank you for that. But for some of us who have really strong views... 
And we've got developed some really strong personal convictions. Help us to remember that our brothers and sisters have the same Holy Spirit we do. And he will be faithful to convict and to guide. But Lord, I pray for those today who've never received Jesus. That today would be a day that if they've never received him, that they could come to understand that this is not about religion and obeying rules and going through rituals, but it is about a savior who loves them and wants to grant them forgiveness and eternal life. He wants to set them free from the bondage to sin and to selfishness. Lord, I pray this morning for those who need to trust Christ, that they would reach out to him in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have done things to violate your commandments, not man-made rules, but your commandments, and I've sinned. But I believe you died on that cross to pay the full price. I believe you rose from the dead so that I could spend forever with you in heaven, and I ask you to come into my life, forgive me, and save me, Jesus. In his name we ask it, amen.